We're still talking about electric cars in this episode. And to remind you, that's not because there's anything fundamentally wrong with EVs. EVs are great. The problems we're talking about arise from policymakers and pundits who think everyone should drive only an EV and to ensure that happens. Hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and grants and mandates are being deployed and policies are being implemented to ban the sale of cars with internal combustion engines. You know, the kind of car that 99% of Americans drive today. As is obvious, this is all motivated by two core claims. One claim is that an all-EV future will radically reduce carbon dioxide emissions. The other claim is that EVs are the future, that they're inherently simpler, cheaper, better than conventional cars. As we've discussed, and some might say hammered senseless in the previous three episodes of this four-part series on EVs, the CO2 emissions claims are, at best, really guesses or guesstimates. They're based on cherry-picked data and aspirations. The bottom line is that no one knows nor can prove how much emissions might decline as the quantity of EVs rises, or in fact, whether it will lead to increase in overall carbon dioxide emissions globally. That's because of the inconvenient realities of the complex and labyrinthine and opaque global supply chains to mine and refine all the minerals needed to build the EV batteries. That's also a key reason that no one has any idea if, when, or at all, if ever, that EVs will be price competitive with conventional cars. As a fundamental calibration point, I'll remind you that the typical EV battery weighs about a thousand pounds. That's to replace about 80 pounds of gasoline. And to build that 1,000 pound battery, you have to dig up roughly 500,000 pounds of dirt and rock somewhere on this planet. Again, that's for one car. If you want to dig deeper, no pun intended, <laughs> into these issues, and you haven't listened to the previous three episodes in this series, well, I recommend the obvious. Listen to, listen to them. In this episode, we're closing out this four-part series on EVs with a focus on the supply chain geopolitics and another critical and profoundly misguided claim. That's the claim, a constant refrain, in fact, from EV advocates and green tech advocates, that the, ma the massive subsidies on alternative energy will, quote, free us from our geopolitical adversaries' manipulation of the price of oil, end quote. By now, most people who are following this energy transition narrative are pretty familiar with the fact that the world has some very deep dependencies for the supply of minerals in general and energy minerals in particular. Uh, most of them are produced elsewhere. And that means that the same geopolitical forces uh, are in play for energy minerals as they are for oil and gas. And indeed, they have features, that is the energy minerals have features that are arguably more worrisome uh, and present some significant unknown and serious risks for future, not just pricing and supply, but in the geopolitical dependencies uh, in supply chains for transportation systems or cars. Some of you know I've been writing and talking about the mineral and mining realities for a long time. Uh, in fact, early in my career, I had the good fortune to work for a Canadian hard rock mining company. For the historians who follow these kinds of things, it was called El Dorado Nuclear. It, it also operated a uranium refinery in Toronto. Uh, the critical minerals they mined 
other than uranium were gold and silver from a, a mine site on the shores of a place called Great Bear Lake in the Northwest Territories. You can look it up on Google Maps. It's, a, it's one of two massive lakes that most people have never heard of in that region. The other is Great Slave Lake. Both those lakes are bigger than most of the Great Lakes. Both of them are far bigger than Lake Erie or Lake Ontario. And both of them are far deeper than any of the Great Lakes. I mean, these are massive bodies of water. I mean, there's a great empty, great, the great empty Northland of Canada full of minerals. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I, I learned I learned a fair bit about mining and miners uh, from that experience, and uh, I've come to like uh, like the mining industry and miners. But and in fact, uh, both Canada and Australia as sources of minerals for the world. And the United States in particular, they're, you know, they're generally generally seen as friendly nations <laughs> and, and reliable suppliers. Uh, and they'll be important ones for the future of uh, mineral supplies for EVs and you know, all manner of things. But the geopolitical issue that really matters today and for the future is not just Canada and Australia, but who who are the suppliers for most of the critical energy minerals for EVs and for wind turbines and solar arrays and the critical question from a geopolitical dependency and economic dependency jobs and all the rest is how much supplier concentration is there for energy minerals compared to say hydrocarbons again remember the claim is that evs and green machines free us from odious dependencies well let's start with chile and copper copper is the central energy mineral that you can't do without for any of the transition plans. Uh, you obviously need, lith you need lithium for lithium batteries, but you need copper for everything, electric cars, uh, solar arrays, wind turbines. Chile is the largest copper producer in the world, has 20% market share. And it has a new socialist president who has promised, quote, social justice and environmental reforms in mining. And it started down that path. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that works out in terms of in increasing uh, the supply of copper. For those who worry about Russia, it's worth noting that Russia is one of the biggest, the number and number three supplier of uh, nickel uh, to the world. Uh, Indonesia is number one, by the way. Uh, Indonesia is not exactly seen as a super stable region uh, in, in the world as a supplier, but and they are ma massively increasing their uh, mining and refining operations for nickel. Uh, so they will retain uh, nickel dominance. Back to Russia, they're also a, a major global supplier, by the way, of copper and aluminum. Uh, huge, huge, uh, huge market share. And uh, China, of course, is the uh, proverbial big kahuna when it comes to uh, to not just the mining, but much more importantly, the refining of the minerals. You don't just dig nickel out of the ground, you dig nickel ore out of the ground and you have to refine it. This is true of all the minerals. As the International Agency points out, and I'll, I'll quote them, this is, a, this is a, a meaningful and consequential Observation, quote, the share of refining for energy minerals is around 35% for nickel, 50 to 70% for lithium and cobalt, and nearly 90% for rare earth elements. That is, this is, end quote, China's share of refining. And then for the utterly essential industries uh, that refine the other minerals, including uh, cobalt and uh, other forms of rare earth, China, China has a, a global market share somewhere between 40 and 80% for all the rest of the critical energy minerals for the refining of them. Uh, and based on current investment trends, uh, those shares are increasing, not decreasing. Meanwhile, for the, those who are interested in the implications for the United States, the United States today 
is dependent on imports for 100% of 17 critical minerals. Some of these are not energy minerals, but this broader mineral point. So 100% of some 17 critical minerals are imported to the United States. Another two dozen uh, critical minerals imports account for more than half of uh, domestic US demand. So that, what that means is if you assemble batteries or solar hardware, but if you as assembling them here in so-called factories, battery factories, these are, not, these are, these are assembly plants, uh, which is a, very, a, a distinction that's important because of the utterly deep dependencies on uh, foreign minerals and mineral refining to provide the materials to do the battery assembly. This is sort of the logical equivalent of assembling conventional cars uh, domestically, but importing all the key parts and all the fuel. So there's a lot of media focus on this lately. It's not like it's escaped policymakers and media's attention and a lot of sort of public hand-wringing over these dependencies. It sort of sounds a lot like the hand-wringing over petroleum dependencies that began a half a century ago with the Arab oil embargoes. I suppose the big difference between then and now is that the hand-wringing then mostly started after the uh, infamous Arab oil embargo of 73, 74, whereas the hand-wringing now at least, I guess we could a positive point. The hand wringing is starting before somebody has uh, implemented an embargo that would uh, upset markets and uh, and the political dynamic. But as global mining uh, expands, uh, there's going to be a lot more attention uh, focused on this, it's, and it's starting to happen. Uh, I'll give credit to the Washington Post, for example. They've done some investigative reporting, and then I use headlines titled things like the quote hidden toll from quote clean cars in fact they sent reporters to indonesia again the world's top nickel uh, mining cup uh, region and uh let, let me you know pull a quote from the washington post investigation uh, they said quote extracting nickel refining it and readying it for exports is a gargantuan task and poses steep environmental costs that have yet to be reckoned with End quote. Yeah, well, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, I just to say, you know, welcome to welcome to the discovery party, right? Uh, the Australian Institute for Sustainable Futures, which has been studying the what they call the global gold rush for energy minerals, they've said, uh, and I quote them, that mining uh, for energy minerals will take miners into remote wilderness areas that have maintained high biodiversity because they haven't yet been disturbed. End quote. Well, you could count on a lot more disturbing of those uh, delicate, biodiverse wilderness areas in the very near future, as money is uh, thrown at this uh, at this challenge of finding enough energy minerals to build all the batteries that are imagined. It's not like the International Energy Agency, as I said, has ignored it. Their researchers have done some very some very good work. The public uh, policy facing people in the IEA are enthusiastic to promoting EVs. Uh, and yeah, they acknowledge the importance of energy minerals, which I'll come back to how 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 their acknowledgments play out in a minute. But the actual reporting, the actual science reporting, the documentation and their analyses is very good. Uh, for example, the IA pointed out, and again, these are the analysts writing the reports that are buried in the report, like page 200, we find, quote, the mining uh, can displace communities and threaten natural habitats, end quote. Well, okay. So they they cite, for example, a satellite analysis, and they use satellites because it's pretty hard to get a lot of data are, are needed, as again, as the IEA has pointed out, because many of the mining 
companies, uh, private ones in those parts of the world are, are, are uncooperative or they're in uncooperative uh, political regimes. In any case, they, they found out that there's you know roughly uh, some the order of uh, 10 to 100 acres of land that are built up, expanded, you know, parts of the forest ecosystem that are, are, are cleared for every thousand tons of copper ore that are extracted. And keep in mind that EVs are going to require millions, millions and tens of millions of more tons of copper ore. So they, you know, they've raised the red flag as, 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 as you could say, but it buried uh, deep inside of reports as opposed to uh, uh, highlighted as an issue. And it is a big issue. In fact, the environmental issue with respect to the uh, dislocations uh, of native people, the uh, potential for pollution caused at unregulated areas is is non-trivial. In fact, it may be the, the biggest single increase in environmental impacts that the planet has seen in a long time since the odious uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution when people seem to be less aware of environmental impacts. You know, at Northwestern University, there's a professor there, Jennifer Dunn, who I've quoted many times, a brilliant professor. She's just, just terrific, doing very brave and important pioneering work in analyzing what she calls life cycle social impacts, not life cycle economic impacts or life cycle environmental impacts per se, but social impacts. In fact, let me, let me quote something she wrote in a, in, a, in, a, in a scientific journal. She quote, quote, technologies that are designed to solve grand challenges such as climate change must consider both their environmental and social impacts to understand their true consequences, end quote. I can always say amen. I mean, you bet. Uh, you really have to consider both the local environmental and social impacts to understand what's going on. And some people are. I mean, here's a, I found a very interesting uh, piece of scientific work done by researchers in Spain. These are environmental researchers. And the way they put uh, the frames, the environmental impacts and geopolitical implications of electric vehicles is they framed it as a relocation. It's a great way to phrase it. It's a relocation of environmental impacts. In fact, let me, let me quote from their research. The transfer of environmental burdens from the use phase, that is driving the car, to the raw materials extraction and manufacturing phases entails a delocalization of the impacts which constitutes a new challenge at environmental, social, and legal levels, end quote. Now, the reason they're putting all three together is it's a relocation. There's no tailpipe on an EV. Let me state the obvious. So you relocated the environmental impact from the tailpipe, the use phase, to somewhere else, right? Which entails, that's the delocalization. The power plant itself charging the vehicle, of course, is one delocalization. But the other is the critical one we're talking about, is the emissions and environmental impact from making the vehicle in the first place. So what these uh, environmental researchers in the Spanish study did is they tried to calculate not just the relocation, but the magnitude of the additional environmental impact associated with using an EV compared to a conventional car. So they're comparing not just the fact that there's in, there are other environmental issues associated with the, with the EV, but the magnitude of that. So they they uh, concluded in their study, for example, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll quote it again. This is comparing uh, an EV to a conventional vehicle. Uh, and I, I will note in advance of reading this short conclusion to you that the EV, um, 
battery size that they considered in their analysis was half the size of the battery that is used in most cars. This is a core failing of most of the analyses that are done on upstream emissions for EVs. The core failing is in the assumption of a small battery uh, in the EV. The small battery is not what people are buying. People are buying big batteries to get range. And big batteries, by definition, if they're twice the size, use twice as much material and have twice the environmental impact and twice the impact on pricing and all the rest of that. So stipulating that the Spanish study was for an EV with a battery half the size of the most popular EVs that are bought. This is what the Spanish researchers concluded, that the EV will produce an increase in fine particulate matter by 26%, an increase in human carcinogenic impact by 20%, and non-carcinogenic toxicity by 61%, terrestrial ecotoxicity, that is nasty stuff going into the water and, and, and soil, by 31%, freshwater ecotoxicity increase of 39%, and marine ecotoxicity increase of 41% compared to petroleum vehicles, end quote. I, I mean, you know, it's sort of the kind of thing, if you read it carefully, it kind of takes your breath away. Because when it comes to claims of environmental parity and superiority of EVs, the monomaniacal pursuit of CO2 reductions, again, stipulating that they really don't know how much they reduce, has totally sidelined the entire range of air, water, biodiversity, and ecosystem protections that were once the core goals of environmental groups. I think it's a bad trade personally, but setting aside my opinion of whether it's a bad trade, it's uh, certainly uh, orthogonal to the traditional roots of the environmental movement. I'll give global EV companies some credit. They're, uh, they formed a, uh, a new initiative called the Science based targets initiative, right? It's 40% of the world's uh, EV makers have, have formed this initiative. And it's, uh, it's it was a good idea. It's to, it's to define a quote, common framework uh, around automobile emissions, including these upstream indirect emissions. I like the title, Science-Based Targets Initiative. You know, uh, given what uh, I'm telling you in this podcast and what you can find in my reports, let's hope, let's hope they do follow the science. And, Again, let's come back to the International Energy Agency to give them credit. They're not ignoring this. They are continuing to do the research as many of these international bodies do. The basic research and the research scientists doing the work do excellent work. Uh, the executive summaries and the uh, public policy statements don't necessarily reflect the work. Uh, they sometimes ignore what the, what's in the basic uh, report. And what they do most often is engage in... Uh, rhetorical finger on the scale uh, conclusions or use tenditious language and bureaucraties to essentially, uh, to put it undiplomatically, hide the realities of the conclusions that the research shows. In fact, let me spend a little bit of time on that because this is important stuff. The International Energy Agency put up a new report this, this, this month in July. Uh, it's part of a series they're gonna begin following their initial seminal report on critical minerals, they're gonna be issuing regular updates now on the, uh, the state of play in critical energy minerals to build batteries and of course, solar arrays and, and wind turbines. But when it comes to mining, uh, what the IEA report points out, and as I, as I pointed out in this uh, series of episodes in my, in my writing, is the, uh, the big dog in this, the, 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 the uh, 
the biggest uh, increase in mining is going to be associated with uh, building batteries, batteries for cars and, and batteries for grids. And so they're, they're looking at all of it, but this is, this is the one that, that uh, is driving the system, so to speak. So <clears throat> I'm going to read specific things that they've said so I don't misquote them. And then I'm going to uh, give you some examples of how they're phrasing this thing in this new report. And then, uh, you know, I'm going to editorialize, obviously. So here's, this is from the executive summary summarizing the, the this very large, very large report on the state of critical minerals. Quote, the affordability and speed of energy transitions will be heavily influenced by the availability of critical mineral supplies. End quote. Okay. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> that, but if you were a policymaker, what is it, heavily influenced? I mean, it dominantly influenced, how heavily influenced? Uh, it's utterly dominated by the availability of critical mineral supplies. In, in money money, uh, and uh, proof by PowerPoint, uh, you, you, don't, you don't build batteries with that. You have, to, you, have to, you have to dig up the earth and build refineries to build batteries. It takes money for sure, but it takes time. And uh, being realistic about those two things are utterly critical. Anyway, back to their report. And let me quote again. Quote, clean energy technology costs continue to, to decline. Sorry, clean energy technology costs continued to decline until the end of 2020 due to technology innovation and economies of scale. But high material prices then reversed to this decade-long trend. Despite these recent setbacks, it is noteworthy that the prices of all clean energy technologies today are significantly lower than a decade ago, end quote. Okay, think about the bait and switch here. They have told you honestly that the clean tech energy costs, which include batteries, uh, declined until 2020, and then it, then, then it stopped. Uh, material prices, the cost of materials uh, reversed the decades-long trend. That's absolutely true. Now, despite setbacks, okay, that's a setback that's actually implies that it's temporary. It's not temporary. It's locked into the nature of what they're trying to do. And then they disingenuously make that statement that it's noteworthy that prices of all these clean technologies are lower than a decade ago. Yes, this is obvious. And it's a, a giant, so what? The key issue is not that they're lower than they were a decade ago. It's that all of the claims, all the policies, all the subsidies are predicated on the claim that EV batteries and solar arrays and wind turbines will continue to exponentially or radically decline in cost. The cost of these technologies are inevitably going down. All of the models for future penetration of EVs and wind and solar are anchored in lower future costs radically lower future costs in many cases. And so what IEA do is telling you disingenuously is that they're cheaper to now than they were 10 years ago. We know that. That is in fact the result of scaling and technology. The question is, are they gonna get cheaper in the future? This is entirely a mining question. It's entirely a supply question. And a question of whether or not to be enough supplies or not is genuinely dubious, but anyway. You could see the disingenuous inclusion of it's cheaper today than 10 years ago. It really is a so what, and it's intended to distract people. Anyway, back to the IEA. Let me quote again. 
And they say, there is growing recognition that policy interventions are needed to ensure adequate and sustainable mineral supplies, end quote. Okay, um, policy interventions. Well, it's self-evidently a pretty loaded phrase, but it means, of course, intervening in the market. And for many, it's heavy handed away as possible to achieve the uh, putative goals. So, yes, that's right. Policy interventions will be needed, but will they be adequate? I mean, do do policy interventions in Europe and America cause there to be more Congolese cobalt? I guess to some extent, if we say we'll pay, we'll pay the price and ignore the consequences of child labor and child, you know, use of use, use of literal slave labor in many mines in some parts of the world. If we just turn a blind eye to that and pay whatever is required, okay. Or does it does it mean a policy intervention to tell them to stop doing that will result in them stop stopping doing that? I don't think so, but that's just an opinion. There's a lot bundled up into this uh, phrase, policy interventions. Again, back to the IEA. So they say, quote, the IEA's new critical minerals policy tracker has identified nearly 200 policies and regulations across the globe, with over 100 of these enacted in the past few years. Many of these interventions have implications for trade and investment. And some have included restrictions on import or export, end quote. Think about that. Okay, there's been lots of policies that would tell you that policymakers are paying attention to the mineral supply. It's become obvious. When I first wrote about it, it was a shock to people to learn, again, that factoid I told you at the top, you know, one EV, battery, 1,000 pounds, you got to dig up 500,000 pounds of the earth somewhere, it was shocking to people. Now, okay, becoming conventional wisdom Policymakers are passing policies, but it's a key phrase. Some of the policy changes have included restrictions. So Indonesia, as an example, has uh, passed laws that make it illegal to export nickel ore. You have to build nickel refineries in Indonesia to export refined nickel. That doesn't de decrease uh, our dependencies. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing for Indonesia. That's a whole separate issue. But from a dependency and price perspective, the price is clearly controlled by Indonesia. The supply controlled by Indonesia is a dominant nickel supplier. And all the environmental and social issues associated with that massive expansion are ones we have essentially no control over. That's just the nature of the beast. Policy restrictions, can they can they be impactful? Well, let's, let's choose, let's remind people uh, the China is the, the big dog here, right? 40 to 80% of refined energy minerals come from China and their uh, dominance has not shrunk as the IAs point out the same report, but in fact, in many cases increased. Yeah, a, an example of the implications of these geopolitical dependencies. Uh, let's uh, talk about an announcement from China a couple of weeks ago that many people didn't notice. Uh, they announced that they're gonna look at uh, Chinese export policies relating to an element called gallium. Gallium, you say? What's that? Well, that's the element you need to build gallium arsenide semiconductors that are how you fabricate flat screen TVs, lasers. I mean, LEDs are made from gallium arsenide semiconductors and many classes of radio frequency chips. China supplies over 95% of the world's world's gallium. And they're... Uh, re-examining uh, their export policies. Now, this is a shot across the bow from China with respect to uh, things like the US uh, restricting exports of high-performance CPUs. So we can do that and have done that, and they can restrict the exports of uh, 
element that's utterly critical, uh, without which you cannot build uh, high performance <laughs> LEDs and lasers. So it's a, uh, it's it's let's just say it's complicated. Now, back to, back to uh, one more quote, uh, well, a couple more quotes from the IEA because it's important. It's an important report. Quote: Despite headwinds in the wider venture capital sector, critical mineral startups raised a record 1.6 billion dollars in 2022. Battery recycling was the largest recipient of VC funding, followed by lithium extraction and refining technologies. Today, the vast majority of that recycling capacity is located in China, end quote. Okay, so again, the statement that will be quoted and has been quoted in the press is that uh, venture capital markets are pretty excited about investing in these uh, critical minerals sectors. Well, it turns out, sir, first, $1.6 billion is chump change when it comes to the hundreds of billions, in fact, trillions that will be needed to invest to meet the demands. So it sounds big, but what they could have put in is they uh, we've made an investment so far that it's uh, less than 1% of what's required. And they did observe that most of the money is going into battery recycling. And with the biggest recipients, uh, the biggest expansions are in China. How does that help? How does that help uh, the geopolitically? And let me just say uh, one more thing about recycling that I've said in previous episodes for those who think that and have claimed that that's the salvation to the mineral supply problem. The batteries that are being built and need to be built over the next decade will have to come from new mines, not recycled sources, because we're told those batteries will last 10 years. That means there will be nothing available for recycling for 10 years or more into the 2030s. So to build the hundreds of millions of batteries that are to be built in the next 10 years, recycling is utterly irrelevant. Yet that's the flagship subject that IEA featured talking about the uh, progress in venture capital funding. All right, a couple more quick points. IEA, I quote again, the IEA pointing out, quote, the average battery size for electric cars continued to rise in nearly every major market. The trend of favoring larger vehicles seen in conventional cars is being replicated in the EV market, posing additional pressure on key critical mineral supply chains, end quote. As I've said in previous uh, podcasts and in my report, the IEA has um, put their finger on the scale in their forecast for materials demands by assuming small batteries. At the same time, their own reporting, as, they, as, as the quote I just read, has observes that people are buying big cars with big batteries. Uh, that's the nature of the market. So the solution, I guess you could ban, you could ban uh big batteries, or you could make a law that doesn't allow people to buy bigger batteries with more range. It's all possible. You could, you can, one can Sovietize an economy, as I've often said. So, but the real, the real world is that the kind of batteries that people are buying will require two to three times more minerals in total than the assumptions that are being made in these forecasts, which the IEA essentially admits tendentiously again. Again, back to another uh, another observation that in this new IEA analysis, quote, while encouraging practical challenges persist, risks of schedule delays and cost overruns, which have been prevalent in the past, cannot be ignored. There's also an important distinction between technology grade products and battery grade products, with the latter generally, generally requiring higher quality inputs. This means that even with an overall balance of supply and demand, 
the supply of battery-grade products may still be constrained. Moreover, new mining often comes with higher production costs, which could push up marginal costs and prices, end quote. Could? Could? Economics 101, massive demand increase with insufficient supply increase always leads to higher prices. Yep, it's true. It could push it up. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> Man, I'll take that bet. Uh, I guess I've taken that bet. Uh, staking a, a one last uh, uh, one last observation uh, from the IEA report. Again, I'm beating this to death because it is the holy grail. The IEA document is what governments use to forge plans around the world, and they generally forge the plans based on the executive summary statements, not on the full body of the report. Which is why I read the whole report, and apparently most people don't. So again, the quote from this new analysis, quote, limited progress has been made. Again, limited progress has been made in terms of diversifying supply sources in recent years. The situation has even worsened in some cases. Compared with the situation three years ago, the share of the top three producers in 2022 either remains unchanged or has increased further, especially for nickel and cobalt. Our analysis of project, project pipelines indicates a somewhat, somewhat improved picture for mining, but not for refining operations where today's geographical concentration is greater. The world, and so the IEA, the world has not yet successfully connected the dots to build diversified supply chains, end quote. You think? <laughs> I mean, there's a, this is a golden buried set. has not connected the dots. Yes, yes, they have. They're ignoring the dots. They connected them and they just ignore it, thinking the hand-waving with policy pronunciamentos solves the problem. And yet here's the IA pointing out that despite hundreds of policies being passed, limited progress has been made in diversifying Supply sources is even worse than in some cases. In fact, you could argue none of them have materially improved. So let me just read one more sentence from the report, their conclusion. And this tells you everything you need to know about what the reality is and what they're calling for. And I quote, a broad and bold strategy is needed that brings together investment, innovation, recycling, rigorous sustainability standards, and well-designed safety nets, end quote. That's what's needed to get a sufficient mineral supply chain. Okay, well, that this is that's not a you know, that's aspirational by definition and it's and as they've said themselves it's not happening. So let's just turn briefly to um, one other feature of this whole debate because I keep talking about the policy parts, the policy implications, the broad strategies that are required about the aspirations. And as I've quoted from the IAA report, validating what others have said and what I've said is that we're not seeing exponential increase in the supplies, but we're going to see an exponential increase in demands for energy minerals, which makes a lie of the claims that we can easily achieve a switch, even if, even if it were to be helpful that we would rapidly affect the change from internal combustion engine to EVs. It's not going to happen. Most serious analysts know that. And there are many environmental papers and studies, which I've quoted in my research paper, that specifically state that. In fact, the, given the realities of mineral supplies and the uncertainties about these, the emissions, that the, sort of the net zero planners, including the IEA, call for, and they're very clear about this. And I'm gonna speak very briefly to this because this is very important. In fact, I've 
spoken pretty aggressively about it in a few video clips here and there. What they're calling for is behavior change. Behavioral, in fact, direct quote is behavior change is quote, critical to achieving quote, climate goals. So what does that mean? Well, this is IEA again, demand side measures such as limiting the growth of battery size. It can help bridge the mineral supply gap. Well, do you know what that means? The, you, you can ban the size of the, you can limit by law the size of car you can own or the size of the battery can be in the car, the range of the battery. The most popular EVs are increasingly have bigger batteries because it makes driving more convenient. Convenience is a, is a feature of driving that is anchored in the whole role of the automobile of society. SUVs are the trend of the whole for the whole world. The global share of SUVs, the global share, not just not US, is up from 15% of all new cars sold uh, a decade ago to two, to, sorry, to one third. So you've got a doubling of the number of new vehicles that are SUVs globally. In the United States, it's growing even faster. It's also true in Europe, by the way. And the IEA points out, quite honestly, you know, quote, this trend could be curbed by enacting policies that discourage vehicles with extremely large batteries. For example, by linking incentives to battery sizes or in the longer term, taxing EVs with large batteries, end quote. So if you make the mistake of buying a bigger car with you know, big batteries, we'll just tax the hell out of it, make it more expensive. Okay, maybe you think that's a good idea, but the point that I and making here the critical point, aside from the freedom of choice and more taxes, is that that is orthogonal to the claim that the EVs are going to be inherently cheaper. They're not only not going to get cheaper, they're going to make sure they're more expensive, which would mean there'll be fewer cars. Because, you know, that old adage, if you want less of something, you tax it. Okay, what else would you do to discourage energy-intensive battery materials and components? Um well, you would do something that the Europeans have already implemented called their carbon border adjustment tax. What that's doing is putting a tax on critical minerals in the batteries that are produced elsewhere by carbon intensive processes, which by the way, means all processes globally right now in the mining industry. So that also increases the cost of the batteries. I mean, the whole point of it, of course, is to provide incentives, quote unquote, for battery production in on clean energy grids in Europe. All right, well, sure. If you raise the cost of the thing that people are buying then the and you are sure it's gonna stay high, then competitors can emerge that do things differently at those higher costs in principle. But in, in practice, uh, what happens is that the market is reluctant to engage in billions of dollars of investment at these higher price levels if they think that those high prices might evaporate when policymakers change your mind and you know because of political revolts and those taxes are eliminated which are the time frames we're talking about remember it takes years to build factories and decades to build mines in those kind of time frames it's pretty risky to bet that there won't be a political revolution over more expensive cars and behavioral change adjustments made by regulators and policymakers and these aren't the only behavior changes that the ev transitionists believe that need to happen i mean given uh, Given the nature of this market, they think that there needs to be other forms of, quote, behavioral intervention. I've talked about this uh, in my paper about one of the ways to solve the problem of the emissions from charging the battery is to do something that's euphemistically called smart charging. Basically, that means you can only charge your car. You can only refuel it 
when it's appropriate to refuel the car. That is, the grid is generating electricity that uh, is of a character that the regulators think uh, you should be using. So you gotta, you could, you know, provide price incentives for that. Just charge a lot more for when you refuel your car any, at a time uh, when there's high carbon dioxide emissions of the grid, and charge less when that's not happening. Again. Uh, that would mean during peak times when most people are driving, this would make the, the claim that driving an EV is cheaper uh, wrong because you're actually mandating it to be more expensive to charge your car at the time which is most convenient to drive a car. This sort of circles back around to one key observation that many of the um, environmental organizations, and again, including the IEA, have said about the, uh, the challenge of emissions from cars. Uh, it's that there's too many cars in the world. I mean, the IEA and their net zero goal, remember the net zero goal is one that's being uh, referred to and applied to and touted by uh, policymakers around the world who are trying to move towards net zero. In the net zero goal paper from the IEA, it specifically states that what may be needed, they're very careful about language that must be done, but it's maybe needed, is to increase the number of households in the world that don't have a car. I like how they phrase that. They don't say take people's cars away, <laughs> which is what this says. If you're gonna increase the number of global households who don't have a car from the level today to a higher level in the future, you, you have to find means to take people's cars away who already have a car. It's not just about restricting the growth in, in the number of new cars. They explicitly talk about reducing the number of cars that are owned by people today. In fact, one researcher simply, they were very candid. They wrote, let me quote, there is therefore a need for a wide range of policies that include measures to reduce the vehicle ownership and usage, end quote. It's not me saying it. These are the environmental researchers pointing out to reach these goals, you're gonna to have to uh, reduce the number of people who own cars and how much the cars are driven when you actually own one. In fact, California regulators in their um, and their uh, their climate goals have been very explicit. It's in it's in the plan, in the California plan. The goal is to ensure that people drive EVs, but even if they're using an EV, the actual total mileage that people drive each year with their car, an EV, will have to be one quarter lower per year than the driving that they did. Interestingly, they put this in the regulation thirty years ago. Now, this was a way to sort of soften the blow, 25% fewer miles driven than the average driver 30 years ago. Or if they were honest about this, they said they're gonna, you have to have to cut in half how much you drive compared to what you do now. Because to, compared to today, people drive more. It's, it's, a, it's an attack on car culture. For many environmentalists, the car uh, is uh, a, a, an environmental hazard and should be discouraged, in fact. A really interesting recent New Yorker article put it this way, quote, the grip of the car is a metaphor for liberty is as firm as that of guns, if perhaps with similarly destructive results, end quote. So that's pretty good summary of where um, the anti-car car movement have, have their heads. It's not just about getting rid of internal combustion engines. It's about reducing car use in general. And just to close out, Coming back to where I began the series, began this episode on the false premise that EVs will reduce CO2 emissions radically and that EVs, uh, mandating them is perfectly fine because they're inevitable, because they're better and inevitably cheaper and more convenient. 
and yet the argumentation internally is flawed. You know, I, I like the uh, Richmond Feynman quote that others have used, and I, I, I use it. You know, Feynman uh, was a polymath, a Nobel laureate in physics. Uh, be, became famous to the broader world for his work on the Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Panel, looked at the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. But when we talked about technology broadly and technology progress, he had a great line. He said, and I quote, for a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled, end quote. It's a great line. Uh, he's absolutely right. Uh, if if policy goals are to reduce uh, automotive petroleum use, because policymakers all agree on that and just state it candidly, and obviously there are a lot of other ways to do it. There's a lot of other technologies that can do that, not least uh, encouraging the use of more efficient combustion engines. And in fact, doing that would displace far more oil far faster and more transparently than uh, subsidizing EVs. Be far easier politically, frankly, and and if you if you feel compelled to subsidize things, subsidizing more efficient uh, vehicles, uh, engines for the vehicles that people like to drive, would be the opposite of a of a uh, of a regressive tax. It would be progressive because the people who would benefit are the share of drivers who can't afford the expensive cars and who drive the most, frankly. And many of those are the kinds of people that mow your mow your lawn, do all the kinds of services that are essential to a wealthy society. Let's let's give them the money for a more efficient uh, pickup truck rather than giving money to the wealthy to drive uh, an expensive EV. It's really an upside down um, inverse Robin Hood strategy if, if the goal is to cut oil use. Look, I'll close with this observation because I've been beating up in EVs, but mostly what I'm beating up I hope you realize is not on EVs per se. I think they're great vehicles. I think the new EVs are impressive and fun to drive. And there'll be hundreds of millions more EVs in the world, in a world with 2 billion cars, by the way, but there'll be hundreds of millions of more EVs. Lots of EVs will be produced and sold. Lots of um, companies will lose money trying to compete in that market. Maybe a few will go bankrupt. Uh, it seems like the path that we're going to be on, but this has nothing to do with the odious policies to have market intervention to force a world where only EVs are available to be purchased and where we believe that EVs are some kind of magic bullet that will have a huge step towards cutting carbon dioxide emissions. It's not a magic bullet. It's a nice model of car. It's not going to cut carbon dioxide emissions significantly. It may not cut them at all. And if the bans on internal combustion engines, if those are actually implemented, the ones that are in place now in a dozen states and dozens of countries and that the EPA is effectively doing with its new tailpipe rule. If those bans are implemented, it will constitute uh, one of the most destructive economic and social policies, arguably of the, the last century and a massive misallocation of capital in the world's uh, $4 trillion, call it personal mobility industry. It's a really dangerous uh, move. It's a really bad thing for markets and economies and the citizens of our country and of the world. And it won't have any of the effects that are claimed. It will enrich in some people uh, and it will impoverish many, many more. Not a good, not a good thing. And this is why I've spent so much time uh, in four episodes on this issue of the impending uh, mandating of driving electric vehicles everywhere for everyone. It is 
as the series uh, is titled, An Impossible Dream. Probably should have titled it The uh, Unachievable Nightmare. So with that, uh, until the next episode, when we'll turn to a different subject and won't be beating up in EVs anymore, at least at least in the immediate future, although I feel uh, doubtless we'll have to return to the subject again because it's not going to go away. If you like what you're learning and hearing, uh, give us a rating uh, on the platforms where you listen to these podcasts. And uh, if you've got questions and objections, especially to some of the details that I'm laying out, uh, email me, text me, put it in the ratings so I can respond. I will respond as I have in the past. And until the next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode, the last of this four-part series of The Last Optimist. Thank you.